This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Matthew Herbst, and I am an associate, faculty, an associate teaching professor at UC San Diego's Eleanor Roosevelt College, where I serve as the faculty director of the Making of the Modern World program. As chair of the Burke Lectureship on Religion and Society, it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to our fall 2015 lecture by Professor J. Cameron Carter, entitled Post-Racial Blues, Religion and the 21st Century Color Line. Before I turn the podium over to Provost Ivan Evans, who will introduce tonight's distinguished speaker, allow me to set this lecture in context of the Burke Lectureship itself. The Burke Lectureship on Religion and Society is an endowed lecture series which honors the memory of Father Eugene Burke, a Paulist priest, theologian, and scholar who is committed to ecumenical dialogue and engagement. Father Burke even participated as an advisor to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, which drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Father Burke retired from Catholic University of America in 1976 and became affiliated with UCSD and its Catholic community. Before his death in 1984, Father Burke joined with members of multiple religious communities to outline the structure and scope of this lectureship, and UCSD faculty and staff helped to shape the lectureship's organization. An endowment largely raised from hundreds of small donations, which the lectureship continues to seek, as you see uh, the uh, folders out there, please. Uh, we welcome all and any. Uh, the endowment was uh, created and is managed by a board of directors composed of community members and faculty who use these funds to bring prominent speakers to campus to offer timely and engaging lectures that focus on the religious dimensions of being human and explore the functions and responsibility of religion in society and its social and cultural impact. Starting in 2016, our annual Burke Lectures will be organized around a common theme. And the theme for 2016 will be religion and the environment, with our first lecture on this topic in spring 2016, with more details to follow soon. Since there are so many people who worked to make tonight's lecture possible, let me take a moment to give thanks to the members of the Burke Board for their leadership and steadfast belief in the importance and value of the Burke Lectureship, to our partners in the Department of History, particularly staff member Joan Barini, who tended to a host of logistical challenges, to our on-site coordinators Ed and Stella Wade, and to Nancy Hatch and our volunteers, to UCSD-TV for their continued partnership, to our collaboration with the Dean of Arts and Humanities, and to you, our audience and our viewers. Thank you all. And now, I invite Professor of Sociology and Provost of Eleanor Roosevelt College, Yvonne Evans, to, up to the podium to introduce tonight's speaker. Provost Evans. Good evening. Um, 
Thanks for the pleasure and the honor of uh, introducing our uh, guest and speaker at the Burke Lecture Series tonight. Um, <coughs> Jay Cameron Carter is a professor of... Um, sorry, my font is so small, I didn't realize that. Oh, my glasses are getting so weak. <laughs> He's a professor of um, systematic theology and black church studies at Duke Divinity School at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And he's currently a resident associate at the National Humanities Center. Dr. Carter received his BA from Temple University in his hometown of Philadelphia, where he studied mathematics. He earned his MA in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary and his PhD in religious studies from the University of Virginia. <laughs> Clearly, there's something about uh, uh, mathematics that attracted you to theology. <laughs> Professor Carter teaches theology and black church studies and investigates the complex forms of identity that mark us all, especially along the axes of race, gender, and nationalism. He is particularly interested in the implications that flow from Christian theology and the specific deployments of Christianity's social imagination in the multiple formations that we all inhabit. But critique alone does not exhaust Professor Carter's interests, although critical and innovative reinterpretation is indeed the central hallmark of his work. As one who undertakes religious and social criticism as a Christian intellectual, he is concerned ultimately with reconstruction. As W.E.B. Du Bois once said in a posthumously um, published prayer that dates back to the first decade of the 20th century. If we destroy reason and religion and do not rebuild, help us, O God, to realize how heavy is our responsibility and how great the cost. The task, then, is not just criticism, but reconstruction. Professor Carter is engaged in a reconstructive enterprise that seeks to redirect Christian identity and the social imaginary of Christianity itself, rescuing Christianity from dastardly and dubious purposes with which it has sometimes been settled in history. Professor Carter explores and interrogates questions of identity, politics, cultural and social criticism, history, film, film criticism, and philosophy as part of the pressing task of voicing a new religious and Christian social imagination for the 21st century. Author of the much-acclaimed book, Race, a Theological Account, published by Oxford University Press, and numerous essays and articles, Professor Carter is just completing a new book entitled God's Property, Blackness and the Problem of Sovereignty, which is forthcoming from Duke University Press. He is also working on a new project called Post-Racial Blues, Religion and the 21st Century Color Line, and that indeed is the topic of tonight's talk. So please help me in welcoming a remarkable and remarkably young scholar as our fall 2015 Burke Lecturer.
I'd like to express my appreciation and gratitude for being here today. Um, I'm going to talk a bit low because I'm nursing a cough, um, and I want to apologize in advance for having to, from time to time, lean over and cough. Um, but um, I just wanted to say that uh, starting out, I hope that my uh, voice is still audible. Um, let me begin by first expressing my gratitude and appreciation to um, a few uh, people, Professor Matthew Herbst. Um, I want to express my gratitude uh, where he is. I don't see in the back. Thank you very much for reaching out to me uh, over a year ago, and inviting me uh, to come and um, join a distinguished uh, list of people who have been Burke lecturers. I'm very grateful and um, my gratitude is uh, very high. Thank you very much. Um, also, I'd like to express my gratitude and appreciation to um, uh, Provost Professor Yvonne Evans. Um, you're the provost of which college? I want to make sure I get that. Uh, of, the, of the Eleanor Roosevelt College. So I'm very grateful for that wonderful um, um, uh, introduction uh, that you gave me and um, for the fine conversation over lunch. It was just getting so good. <laughs> and so thank you for the work that you do in your scholarship. And I just got a little tease of it over lunch, and now I'm like itching to go get your book. Um, and um, also, I'd like to thank um, board members uh, of the Burke Lectureship um, for this fine um, um, lectureship that you all uh, superintend and oversee. Thank you for your fine work. And last but not least, all of you sitting here today right now, thank you um, for taking out a little bit of time in your evening to come and hear uh, what uh, um, these strange thoughts that I have. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm going to begin <clears throat> by talking about this uh, uh, latest project that I'm working on. I'm wrapping one project up, but I've been nursing this other project along the way for um, a few years now um, that I'm calling Post-Racial Blues. Um, I'm going to uh, start by giving something of an introduction about what the project is about, a kind of just sort of summary and an overview. And then from there, I'm going to launch into the main theme of today. I'm going to argue um, um, that the issues of uh, the concept of the post-racial, um, the sense, and I'll elaborate this a little bit more as we go further, the sense um, that dawned upon us, has been dawning upon this country for some time now, but sort of reached a kind of crescendo with the election of President Barack Obama that somehow, some way, we were dealing with and effectively overcoming um, the history and the baggage of, 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 of racism um, in this country um, I'm going to talk about how, in many ways, that that is a farce, um, but that the, that the post-racial is actually what I call racism's afterlife. Um, and I'm going to also argue that it, the newness of it all is a not-so-new newness, because my claim tonight is going to be, and this is one piece of the project, it's going to be that Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, actually was the first one to theorize what we now call the post-racial. I'm also going to contend that the concept of the post-racial and the practice of a certain kind of overcoming of race, Jefferson writes into the founding documents of the nation. And therefore, the United States of America was founded as a post-racial racist nation. Okay, that's my grand claim. We'll see. Um, and then finally, I'm going to close by turning to, and this is my work in black studies, um, by turning to the black radical tradition and arguing that before um, and after the before and after post-racial governance, there's the black radical tradition, which imagined a form of the political 
that did not traffic in the logics of the racial slash the post-racial, but was always already the critique thereof. I'm going to call this critique not so much being anti-political, A-N-T-I. I'm going to argue that it's the anti, anti, A-N-T-E, political. The political as we know it, as a form of racial governance, comes online because there's already an imagination and a practice of other ways of being together, being with, that does not traffic in racial regulation. The political comes online as a response to that. The political is not first. It's reactive to something else that it already sees as a threat. And I hope to demonstrate that with respect to Thomas Jefferson. Okay. So, so I've got like pieces of this written out in different things. So I'm stitching along the way. So just bear with me. Okay. Fantastic. Post-racial blues, religion in the 21st century color line. This project meditates on contemporary American culture's post-racial blues and in the course of so doing explores a hope that may emerge through careful attention to theologies born of current pain and protest. Fraught dynamics of race are not new in American Christianity. Numerous threads of race and violence were woven into U.S. history upon the wheels of Christianity. (coughs) Race and violence are not unique to the American experience either. Nonetheless, we are experiencing a distinctly potent moment in relation to racial violence and injustice, a moment that calls the American church to new and trenchant explorations of race, post-raciality, and reconciliation. Indeed, across the church spectrum, Christians are saying, There is a continuing issue with race in our country, and as Christians, we need to be accountable to new ways of imagining church and society in relation to race. Until now, I focused my writing on outlining a genealogy of race as intertwined with and even driven along the tracks of Christian theology, the latest installment of which is forthcoming forthcoming as God's property, (coughs) blackness, and the problem of sovereignty. Here tonight, I turn to the current moment, um, and in this broader project, to the current moment, a moment we might call the post-racial Obama era, and excavate the new terms of entanglement of race, theology, and the public imaginary today. My project is to analyze what the post-racial is and to diagnose its relationship to church and society. I argue that the post in post-racial, P-O-S-T, the post that prefixes post-racial, indexes the heightened afterlife of racism. On the page, I have it as race, R-A-C-E, slash, ism. Racism's status as having been born again, though that born-again status expresses itself as the disavowal of racism, as as an ongoing problem on the one hand, a disavowal that can't but help that can't but help erupt in public rituals of sacrificial violence on the other. The relay between disavowal and eruptive sacrificial violence to which movements like Black Lives Matter are responding, I understand an adaptation of Sigmund Freud as expressions of post-racial melancholia, the inability to grieve the lost love object. 
the lost love object here is a society organized racially through whiteness and thus propelled by what might be called white saviorism. Can racial belief, the belief in whiteness as the bedrock of racial formation, sustain itself? Melancholia witnesses to the incoherence of racial belief, the incoherence of sovereignty and of the sovereign. The modus operandi of a settler society such as ours is the engulfment or the assimilative vanishing of the other, their incorporation or discipleship into a vision of the properly human whose measure is the normative universal subject, the citizen as subject. In post-racial blues, religion and the 21st century color line, I interrogate this problem, showing post-racialism to be a disease festering at two tightly related doctrinal locations, theological anthropology and Christology. In getting critical leverage to disrupt Christianity's post-racial capture, I describe in part one of this project the theological problem of post-racialism, as the afterlife of racism. In displaying this, I move between readings of Thomas Jefferson, which I'll talk about tonight, <clears throat> as this country's first theorist of the post-racial. I also engage W.E.B. Du Bois, David Walker, um, and Richard Wright as surfacing the theological terms of post-raciality. Parentheses, pause. Post-racialism, I'm arguing here, is a form of belief it works according to the logic of belief. It is a religiosity, so to speak. Um, so I work between Du Bois, Walker, Richard Wright to surface the theological terms of post-raciality, and I engage James Cone's Black Theology Project as this country's <laughs> first concerted theological analysis of the post-racial um, in his analysis, in that project's analysis of whiteness as a theological problem. I then consider womanist thought and womanist black feminist mariological, the, the womanist black feminist mariological doctrine of the flesh on the one hand, and on the other hand, a theological consideration of social protest movements, again like Black Lives Matter, as it took hold in the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of the killing of Michael Brown by a police officer. Womanism, black feminism, and other movements of protest helped me reconceive theological anthropology and Christology as uncoupled from the vision of the human that drives racism and post-racism. <clears throat> In the second part of the project, I further display this argument through engagements with a series of films in the decade of the 2000s up to the present, culminating in a meditation on 12 Years a Slave. I've selected films that both display melancholic post-racial capture but that also help us reimagine, if not think past the human, which is racially overdetermined. This is an important claim I'm making here. I actually think that the concept of the human, the human as a concept, is already racially loaded. Some people are invested in trying to salvage the concept of the human. I'm trying to think somewhat past it. Um, I have various concepts I'm trying to deploy to think past it, one of which is this notion of the parahuman. I'm not even interested in the post-human, quite frankly, because the post retains that which is attached to as its afterlife. So I'm not interested in the post-human. I'm interested in something like the parahuman, 
by which we understand what it means for us to be creatures, the creatures that we are, in connection with the land, with the environment, with the earth, with animals. And therefore, the lines become blurred um, at points between um, um, a distinctly rational human on the one hand and the irrational animal. That structure becomes a structure of lordship and bondage, a structure of mastery and slavery. So I'm trying to think past the human. In this project film, as does my analysis of social protest movements, functions as a kind of material cultural engagement with the theological terms of post-racial practice in U.S. culture. <clears throat> I therefore turn to film because I'm interested in how the post-racial as a theological problem undergoes public consumption. In other words, I think, I think film, we could maybe do this through music, but I think film is this kind of potent site through which we consume the post-racial ethos how it animates film, how, um, how it animates both the political conscious and especially the political unconscious. How are we all unconsciously post-racial disciples? Perhaps this is another way, <laughs> excuse me, of framing the guiding question of this project. My aim as this year's Burke lecturer naturally is not to elaborate the full breadth of this project, rather more modestly, um, <laughs> laughing to myself because I was joking with myself when I wrote this, rather more modestly, <laughs> um, or at least I think it's modest, um, it is to give a sense of how not so new is the newness of the post-racial ethos, how not so new is the newness of what one of my interlocutors in this project has called the post-racial horizon. This is the central task then that I've set myself in elaborating the not so new newness of the post-racial the not-so-new newness of contemporary racial performance, the performance of whiteness as an overdetermined performance of the human as such, I will turn to the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, <clears throat> to elaborate upon what I mean by the post-racial, by post-racial performance and by the post-racial as a form of political disavowal, a form of politicization as sheer vulgarity and ultimately violence. My claim about Jefferson to be succinct, to be as succinct and direct as I possibly can be to introduce this lecture is this. Thomas Jefferson theorized the terms of post-racial racism avant la lettre before the fact of the emergence of the post-racial as a 21st century post-civil rights concept and discourse. Jefferson already did it. And not only did he theorize the terms of the post-racial, my further claim is that Jefferson and his settler colonial colleagues wrote them into the founding documents of the United States, thus making the U.S. a racial state in which the post-racial was always already its horizon. The U.S., from the beginning, is a post-racial racist state. In case I wasn't clear. And this brings me to the second claim that I want to make or want to elaborate, which in point of fact, one might argue, is the first claim in that it is the presupposition, the vantage point from which I launch this analysis. It is the tradition of black radical philosophy, black radical aesthetics, and black radical theology that discloses the post-racial, that unveils the post-racial 
as a born-again politics of racism, of racism's afterlife and aspiration toward eternal life. In other words, racism don't want to die. I aim toward the beginning of, (laughs) I aim toward the beginning of a demonstration of this after I take up the Jefferson argument through a brief consideration of one um, of one of the first critiques of Jefferson's post-racial blues. That's David Walker's 1830 appeal to the colored citizens of the world. Let me already provide a kind of proviso. I realized once I got going on all of this, it is just too much. I'm not going to get it all into like 50 minutes or whatever. So I've decided to just give you a summary of my David Walker argument because I want to get to the end part and begin to sort of elaborate the kind of anti-A-N-T-E political. And it's just going to be too much. So here's my kind of um, reading of David Walker's appeal as, appeal as already responding to Thomas Jefferson. David Walker was a contemporary of Jefferson, uh, right? So Walker's appeal comes out in 1830. Jefferson dies, I believe, in 1825. And Jefferson, as I'll get to shortly, is doing all of this work that I'm going to argue is already a kind of theorization of the post-racial. David Walker picks up on the racism of it all. And moreover, he sees that it's structured into the founding documents. So Walker's appeal riffs on the genre of the political documents. He writes them as articles almost of a constitution to respond to the U.S. Constitution at the level of genre. And he distills out of Jefferson's project the kind of theological protocols of a figure of the normative human that is regulated by whiteness. He he pulls that out already early on in 1830. And I'm arguing that David Walker (laughs) is a kind of functioning almost like a political philosopher, decoding the way in which the political works in the United States. But even more, he's decoding what might be called the ontotheology, the theological imagination inside of it. Right. The imagination of whiteness as a kind of savior. So he pulls all of that apart. So if I had more time, I would develop that piece of the argument. But I gave you basically a quick summary. So let me give you the summary that I wrote here. That was my off the cuff summary. Let me give you the summary I wrote here. Um, The reason why I alight upon David Walker's appeal is his insight (laughs) into the fact that Jefferson's quest to establish a post-racial state and the anxiety entailed in that project, we'll get to the anxiety, the melancholia entailed in that project, was of a theological character. That is, he understood that encoded in Jefferson's project for a racial state, which turned upon an immigration policy, on the one hand, and a concomitant deportation or colonization project on the other, an immigration pro- policy on the one hand and a an deportation colonization project on the other, um, was a problematic theological <laughs> anthropology, a theological anthropology of the normative universal human being, the political avatar of which is what we call the citizen. And we know this, right? To be able to call somebody a citizen is a fraught claim. If you don't believe that, all you got to do is go to the border. That's all about who can be a citizen or not. Because the claims about the human ride inside of the political claim of who can be a citizen. David Walker understood that. Theological anthropology, and again, this is Walker's insight, an insight laying at the taproot of a black radical philosophy and aesthetic, is political theology. Theological anthropology is political theology. 
Hence, the contemporary scene in which post-racial discourse and post-racial dreams and post-racial anxieties and post-racial melancholia and post-racial blues, as I call it, are afoot, um, are afoot is but the manifestation of this settler nation's founding origins as a political project, a project of political theology. In other words, the racial and the post-racial are political theological projects. It's a project of political theology. After laying all of this out, mainly the Jefferson piece, I aim to close my lecture with this question. If the post-racial is but the continuation of a U.S. political theology of racism, and that a U.S. political theology of racism founds the nation, (laughs) is there another way to think our communion to think life together, to purloin from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In beginning to answer this, I close with a meditation inspired by poet, philosopher, and my friend Fred Moten's poem in his collection, B. Jenkins, The Unacknowledged Legislature, to argue for a form of being together that swerves past political theology's regulatory protocols which operate necessarily, not so much through exclusion. This is the fallacy in our thinking about race, that race is about exclusion. That's just the surface level. It's deeper than that. But through inclusion and who can be included. It's the logic of inclusion that we got to get our heads around. As Moton's poem would have it, California Representative Barbara Lee is the avatar of this other materiality, this other maternity of the gathered, of gathering, of communion. What he calls, what I call an adaptation of him, anti-A-N-T-E, politics. That's my summary. Okay. So from there, after I cough once again, um, let me talk a little bit about Jefferson now. Okay, and this is going to be the bulk of the uh, of the talk, and then I'll come out and I'll talk about um, um, the unacknowledged legislator. My interest then turns on the 19th century figure, 18th and 19th century figure of Thomas Jefferson. Um, uh, my interest then in the long in the long duration of the 19th century is in this period, reading this period as a scene of subjection reading Jefferson and his project as a kind of um, operation of subjection and how theologies functioned in this moment at the scene of the political as technologies, as um, forms of techne, of forms of subjection in forging subjectivities within the social landscape, indeed within the landscape both of the U.S. as a country, within the landscape of the hemisphere, and within the landscape of the globe. I want to contend and argue by way of Jefferson that we see here an economy of what one theorist has called sweet violence and a highly refined technique and technology of death. <laughs> As an economy of death, globality, Western, the Western Hemisphere along inside of that, the U.S. itself inside of that, is nothing less than a problematic display of in a, a discourse of atonement, of sacrifice, um, an order, a political and social order structured through death, 
and that aims to secure Western life. It is into this global social space of atonement that modern subjectivities have, through highly refined procedures, been constituted. Um, To take this a bit further, the self-determined and self-possessed subject as an overdetermined representation of the human is preconditioned on Western man, is instituted by means of the postulation and then the attribution, which is to say the fabrication, the fabrication of racial difference. The imagination of Western man, quote unquote, on the need to, um, um, the fabrication of Western man rests on the need to eliminate the very racial differences that it produces. That is to say, to put this um, inside of the inquiry that we're talking about tonight, to become post-racial. Post-raciality, then, is about elimination. This means that the self-determined subject (coughs) is only such in relationship to its outer-determined others, on those who are racialized to be the other, and then on the need to eliminate those others, either on the one hand through strategies of annihilation, we saw this with native peoples and the settling, the taking. This, this university is situated on settled, stolen land, right? All of the United States is situated on settled, stolen land. So either through annihilation of native peoples and or through their assimilation, as in the case of immigrants. This is the logic of racial subjection which occurs as a, as a contiguous social, historical, and finally theological process of Europeanization and non-Europeanization, it should be clear from this that to speak of the racial, or as I prefer to do here, to speak of racialization, because race isn't a thing, it's a political process. To speak of racialization is to speak of an economy, an economy of deathly and death-dealing subjectivity, Subjectivity that's premised on the project, the unfinished project of securing the life of the normative citizen and the human in the face of its possible demise by those deemed non-normative. It is to speak of an economy of life and death set in binary terms. It is to speak of (coughs) the circulation of life and death in a global economy of those deemed to be the saved and those deemed to be the damned, of the production of a homo domnatus as the melancholic precondition, the phantomized spectral figure that preconditions Western identity and citizen subjectivity. I seek to follow the insights of a line of diasporic intellectuals from Pauline Hopkins and Du Bois to James Baldwin, Octavia Butler, Hortense Spillers, who have taken the project of Western civilization, or for purposes here of globality, the project of the post-racial, and its theological character seriously, that is, as an object of inquiry. Given this, I want to now just scoop past a bunch of pages I have on Jefferson that sort of like give you a kind of context, setting him up in the context of the European Enlightenment. Skip over that, and I'm going to just jump right to Jefferson. So if there's some background stuff, feel free to ask questions about that, but I had to cut out some pages so we can move forward. As I've indicated in the pages I just skipped, um, I 
I propose that a consideration of Thomas Jefferson's colonization project provides a window onto how the, the light of the Enlightenment would arise on the, on the shores of the United States of America. Indeed, how it sought to arise at just the moment when many European Enlightenment thinkers figured that the light of the Enlightenment, was, was, um, which was nothing less than the light of freedom, the project of freedom, was passing from Europe to the Americas, and particularly to the North American scene of the United States of America. Now, I'm going to pause here and just say for a few minutes what I mean by Jefferson's colonization project, because it was in the pages that I skipped. Um, from the time that he basically started to emerge as a young political figure working in state government in the state of Virginia, Jefferson nurtured what would become to, come to be called a colonization project by which basically he started to see early on from virtually right immediately after the revolution that there was a profound contradiction in the United States. On the one hand, they argued, the revolutionaries argued for freedom, and on the other hand, they had slaves in bondage. And Jefferson saw the, the day coming that this clash, this contradiction would reach a, reach a kind of crucial point and would lead possibly to civil war. He already saw that. 1770s, 1780s. He saw it coming. And this, this worried him. And so he put together various strategies for how to overcome this. One strategy, and I'll talk a little bit more as I get into this, <coughs> was deporting, basically exporting out um, African peoples, slaves, eventually putting together a program where we would get them out and replacing them with acceptable immigrants. Over time, he will come to call this a colonization project, and such organizations as the American Colonization Society would take up the Jefferson kind of worry and concern and try to institutionalize it and enact it. This is how you ultimately get the country of Liberia. This is how you get Liberia. And so I'm interested in the nature of Jefferson's worry. And my big claim here, because I'm going to say a bunch of stuff here, and I don't want you to get lost in all the details I'm going to be running through, because the claim running through everything I'm going to elaborate is that there's a post-racial logic inside of this. And I want to, I want to make clear what that post-racial logic is. Okay? All right. So that's where we're going. All right. To continue where I left off, um, the worry about the U.S., whether or not it could bear, um, take up the mantle of what Europe represented. The sign of this passage of the baton of enlightenment, so to speak, was to be taken, um, was taken to be the American Revolution. So many took the American Revolution as the beginning of the dawn of freedom and proper enlightenment, shifting from old world Europe to new world Americas. <laughs> um, the sign of this passage was taken to be the American Revolution, which found its discursive articulation in that document called the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson was very much in agreement with such thinking, believing that the American Revolution of the, of the 1770s, and I need to say parenthetically, not the Haitian Revolution of the 1790s, which give you another imagination of freedom, was the quintessential sign of enlightenment and the spirit of revolutionary freedom or liberty on the shores of modern times. The American Revolution was both an inauguration Jefferson took it to be, and a promise, the inauguration and promise of freedom as emancipation from tyranny and the promise of freedom and universal equality. In short, 
the American Revolution announced a project, the project of liberty, the project of an American Enlightenment. The problem here is that the American Revolutionary Enlightenment (laughs) was from the very beginning deeply ambivalent. It was marked by a profound contradiction at the origin that had the potential of calling the American Enlightenment, the American project, the United States of America itself, into question, if not bring it down. Slavery was dimming the light of the American project of liberty. Indeed, early on, Thomas Jefferson, perhaps the most articulate spokesperson of this project, worried that the light of enlightenment, the light of revolutionary freedom, might fall stillborn in America, and that the journey of enlightenment from Europe to America and the installation of the American incarnation of freedom might be and might remain incomplete, even as Europe looked on with its gazing eyes of judgment. Will the American project work? The movement, the moment of ambivalence was around slavery, which concerned Jefferson greatly. A passage from his autobiography indicates how much he worried about it. There he recalls that on February the 7th, 1779, when he was a member of the Virginia House of Delegates, Jefferson supported an amendment uh, to a slavery bill (laughs) that would address early on the contradiction at the heart of the newborn republic. He supported an amendment that called for the freedom of all slaves born after a certain day and the deportation at a proper age, and their deportation at a proper age. That's a quote. In his notes on Virginia, (laughs) Jefferson in 1787, less than 10 years from the events described in his autobiography, 1779, he elaborates more fully on this deportation amendment that he supported. He summarizes it in this 1787 notes on Virginia. Here's the quote. An amendment was prepared. He's reflecting back now, 10 years almost. An amendment was prepared directing the slaves, directing that slaves should continue with their parents to a certain age, then be brought up at the public expense to tillage arts and sciences according to their geniuses till the females should be 18 and the males 21 years of age when they should be colonized to such places as the circumstances of the time should render most proper sending them out with arms, implements of household, and of the handicraft arts, feeds, pairs of useful domestic animals, etc., to declare them a freed and independent people, and extend to them our alliance and protection till they shall have acquired strength, and to send vessels at the same time to other parts of the world for an equal number of white inhabitants to induce whom to migrate hither, proper encouragement were to be proposed, end quote. Jefferson proposes here in the early life of the Republic a project, a project that should be added to be paid for at the public expense, and thus as the nation's first public works project for the expatriation of slaves and the importation of a suitable number of immigrants, suitable immigrants, white laborers he's clear about, to fill out the American populace and replace black labor. Really, really interesting. I'm contending this is the post-racial already. 
Let's keep going. This deportation importation project now comes under the name colonization and itself is part of a project of population management. Eventually, over time, Jefferson will fill out this project by suggesting places for these expatriated blacks, Africans to go. He will make various suggestions for Africa, the West Indies, and even places in Western North America. What is crucial for my purposes is the fact that Jefferson is making his colonization proposal just at the moment when a number of U.S. elites, Jefferson among them, are wrestling intensely with how to formulate in theory and formalize in practice the ideals of the Enlightenment, how to install and materialize the project of freedom, and with how to respond to the call of reason to capture and render or represent the light of freedom in philosophical, political, and juridical concepts and institutions. In short, Jefferson makes his proposal inside of the moment of crisis that can be stated around, inside of a moment of crisis that can be stated around a twofold question. On the one hand, how must we think about freedom? How must we think about, think as enlightened thinkers and leaders, on the one hand, And what does freedom and enlightened outlook look like on the ground on the other? What I would like to suggest is that the colonization project was a laboratory in which Jefferson worked through these questions. And in his writings, through them displaying for us (laughs) the incarnational imaginary that founds U.S. governance as a project of racial and population governance, and in this way as a project of political theology meant to install and to stabilize white male identity as a subjectivity of freedom as sovereignty. I would like to refer here to a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote from Paris while he was a U.S. diplomat stationed there. The letter is to James Madison, who will become the fourth president of the United States. And this letter is interesting in that it points. I'm really apologetic for this, y'all. Just bear with me. Um, This letter is interesting in that it points to the entire problematic of peoplehood or population. It fills out and evinces a continuing wrestling with that phrase embedded in the Constitution, we the people. Who is that we? Jefferson's still not done with that. In the first part of the letter to Madison, Jefferson expresses an anxiety, anxiety, this is the melancholia I'm playing with, an anxiety of an unequal weight of prestige and knowledge, the arts and goods between the U.S. and the well-established Europe. You got the young fledgling U.S. and you got the well-established Europe. He's got anxiety over this. Can we measure up? Jefferson is at pains in light of this anxiety to stress the importance of favorable representations of the United States in the European press. He wants the U.S. to measure up under the watchful eye of Europe. So Jefferson then makes the following remark, telling remark to 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 Madison, a remark that invokes the Enlightenment language of freedom, revolution, total revolution, a language that takes us back to the founding moments of the fledgling republic. 
Here's the quote. The politics of Europe render it indispensably necessary that with, that with respect to everything external, we be one nation only, firmly hooped together. Interior government, <laughs> exterior. Now, interior government is what each state should keep to itself. If it could be seen in Europe that all our states could be brought to concur in what the Virginia Assembly has done, that is, its recent agreement on federal rather than state regulation of commerce, it would produce a total revolution of freedom in their opinion of us. And it should ever be, and it should ever be held in mind that insult and war are the consequences of a want of respectability in the national character. In the national character, end quote. This part of the letter is most interesting in that it articulates Jefferson's obsession with basically how the country looks to the outside. His obsession with a distinctive post-independence <coughs> or post-revolutionary task, the task of fabricating what he calls a singular national identity. Singular national identity. This character has external and internal dimensions. Externally, the U.S. national character is about keeping up an outward appearance of being firmly hooped together before the watchful European eye. This is the presence and the persistence of, for unity, the, 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 uh, the yearning for unity. But what is it that must be kept up, consolidated, or unified that would suggest dissension? It is the interior. The in, it is the interiority of the nation itself that is unsettled. Jefferson calls this the unity of an interior government is what we need. And here is where we see once again the beginnings of what I'm calling the post-racial. The post-racial is about the interior governance of unity, the production of an interior uniformity that could match an exterior uniformity. If interior government holds together underneath a well-maintained external appearance, Jefferson argues a total revolution then and only then will be produced in the, in the opinion of, of Europeans. Thus, the revolution through war conducted in 1776 will become total or complete through another revolution, a revolution in European opinion about the U.S. as the U.S., forges interior homogeneity. This second revolution <coughs> is not to be waged through war. Rather, it turns on the consolidation of interior population management, interior government, to enact an interior unity as coalescence into a single meaning, singular, regulated U.S. identity. In other words, the completion of the American Revolution, the American Revolution of Freedom, turns on constituting the U.S. interior, on its inter turns on constituting U.S. interior government governance, on the shaping of a national unity, in short, on a popular sovereignty that is homogenous. The rest of the letter to Jefferson, of Jefferson's letter to Madison is marked by this ongoing anxiety. Can we pull it off? Precisely, this unity is at stake, interior unity, a war notwithstanding, remains incomplete, that the U.S. as a project is unfinished, and thus that the American self 
its national manhood is an unfinished project. Now, there are two more letters I want to briefly um, get to, and then I want to turn to the unacknowledged legislature. <clears throat> there are two letters, further letters, that in fact um, crystallize this anxiety over peoplehood or homogenous interior government or the problem of population management, the management of the people. And actually, there's several letters. I'm only focusing on two more. These are letters written over the decades of the 1810s and the 1820s. So we went from 1779 to the 1780s. Now we're going to the 17, 1810s and the 1820s. What I'm trying to show is that the continuity of his thinking and worrying over this. <clears throat> These are letters written over the decades of the 1810s and the 1820s, all the way through Jefferson's death in 1825. Each letter shows Jefferson's continued obsession with interior government as indexed through population management in the face of assimilation or what can't be assimilated. It is in light of this series of letters that I want to suggest that the colonization project and program was part and parcel of a project to instill homogeneity, homogeneous unity, and that that is what equality means. This is the heart I'm contending of U.S. post-racialism as a political project at the founding of the United States. What becomes clear in these letters is that what is at stake is uh, what is at stake is those modes of flesh, those modes of embodiment that hinder interior governmental unity. Let me break this down. Do the two letters. One letter is going to emphasize one problem of what one aspect of what's hard to assimilate. The other letter is going to emphasize the other aspect of what's hard to assimilate. Right. And overcoming these two obstacles is what's going to forge interior government. It is the concrete practice of the post-racial. So next letter. It's Jefferson's letter of December the 6th, 1818, to his dear friend, German friend, Alexander von Humboldt, that is worth considering in that it is in this letter that Jefferson takes up once again his ongoing anxiety about the national character of what it means to be <laughs> not European but American. However, in this letter, the issue at stake is land and space itself. Indeed, it is the geopolitical politics, it is the geopolitical logics of Jefferson's thinking that are everywhere apparent. Jefferson notes to Alexander von Humboldt that the Americas, not just the United States of America, but the Americas is a hemisphere apart. Jefferson wants to talk about the hemisphere in talking about the United States. This is what he says. It's a hemisphere unto itself. That's a quote that has its own rhythms and system of life apart from Europe. Key to grasping the distinctiveness of this hemisphere and of the United States um, is, um, it's, is in its unique interior population. The population is unique, Jefferson argues, both in its landscape and in its population itself and also in its relationship to other Europeans who occupy the hemisphere. Remember, now, in the Western Hemisphere, all kinds of Europeans are making colonial claims to it. And so they're, they're wrestling against each other even as they're wrestling against the population that are already there. Jefferson is at pains to articulate in the letter 
how it is re- how it is really only in the U.S. that proper revolution, the revolution of the unity of the human at the level of the citizen, has a chance to succeed. So it ain't. He's going to argue it's not happening right in Mexico. He's going to argue it's not happening right in the Caribbean. It's not happening right in South America. It's only when you look at the United States of America that it's happening right. And so in the, in the letter, he's ultimately going to argue that the United States of America is the vanguard of the Western Hemisphere. And as the vanguard of the Western Hemisphere, it's the vanguard of what proper civilization and proper humanity is in the world. That's the force of the letter. It's like, man, Jefferson, thanks. So, coming back to what I have here, with regard to New Spain, which was then present-day Mexico, this comes up in the letter, Jefferson states that he has no doubt that the Spanish there will throw off their European dependence from Spain as a colonial power. But then he raises a doubt about New Spain, a doubt about Mexico, in that what kind of government their revolutionary will end in, he says, he's not certain. History, I believe, to quote Jefferson, furnishes no example of a priest-ridden people maintaining a free civil government, right? So this is his, like, kind of, like, Puritan Protestantism fighting against a kind of Catholicism, but it's all coded in this kind of intramural European struggle that is, like, loaded with this racial stuff carried out on the terrain of the New World. Jefferson voices here a kind of celebration that Mexico and other southern provinces will revolutionize themselves away from Europe, but his fear is that they will only become military despots. For Jefferson, there is really only one place in the hemisphere where proper revolution has a hope of completing its itinerary, and that is the United States of America. It is here, he says, that the land is being pacified and emancipation is being brought to the, quote-unquote, aboriginal inhabitants in our vicinities. He then continues in the letter, we spared nothing to keep them at peace, that is, the aboriginal inhabitants, with one another, to teach them agriculture and the rudiments of the most necessary arts and to encourage industry among them by establishing among them separate private property. In this way, they would have been enabled to subsist and multiply on a moderate scale of landed possession. They would have mixed their blood with ours. Again, continue to think the post-racial with me. They will then have mixed their blood with ours and have been amalgamated and identified with us within no distant period of time, end quote. So now, Jefferson's project is the assimilation, incorporation of native peoples, but their assimilation and incorporation is effectively their annihilation because they become just like us. That's the end of the dastardly quote. What Jefferson is pointing to is the U.S. as a space where the once Europeans (coughs) um, have now molded the land, have become one with the land, have taken up the so-called barren nature, converted it into property, and have melded themselves with the people of that land by Americanizing them, which is to say, amalgamating them. Indeed, in the midst, in the midst of Jefferson's catalog to von Humboldt about what is taking place in the U.S., where the revolutionary light of the political project of enlightenment freedom has fallen from one spatial region Um, To another, Jefferson returns to his concern about the population 
that has been that, um, that has consumed him. He notes that in 50 more years, this is a quote, um, the United States alone will contain 50 million inhabitants. In other words, whereas in one, no other part of the hemisphere of the Americas, as Jefferson sees it, has a revolutionary or emancipatory project of freedom worked itself out precisely through population assimilation. This is precisely what is the continued process of the political in the United States. <clears throat> it is here that basically Jefferson argues that what makes the um, inhabitants of the land, the Amerindian um, Aboriginal peoples, useful is that they are able to be assimilated. This stands in contrast to the letter that he writes after this. This is the one of the 1820s on the eve of his death. And let me just sort of summarize the punchline of that. Well, actually, good, I, I got this like compressed real tight. And then we'll turn to uh, the unacknowledged legislator. In this letter of 1820, written to his friend and French philosopher Marquise de Lafayette, this letter is important insofar as it continues this concern over population assimilation, but not in relationship to indigenous peoples now. Rather, in this letter, <coughs> it is in relationship to the problem of slavery, and thus in relationship to, as they were called then, the Negro. It is here that the problem of population is cast in terms of the alien that can't be assimilated or incorporated. So the native becomes the one that is assimilable through theft of property and um, amalgamating them to our blood. The Negro is the one that can't be assimilated. And so the project of the post-racial is predicated upon those who are assimilable and those who are not. Now, if you telegraph that forward, you got a framework to start making sense of police violence against dark bodies. Because it was already in the beginning. Let me finish this paragraph. It is here that the problem of population is set in relationship to what can't be assimilated, unable to be rendered corporate, that is, incorporated into the body politic. Such flesh is viewed as abject. Dealing with this problem, which has consumed Jefferson from the early days of the Republic has everything to do with the fragility of the project of freedom as a political project in the Americas. It is in the, and, and again, it, it's jacked up when you think about it and you start to probe it because Jefferson both needs the Negro, right? They planting his crops at Monticello. He needs the Negro. He ain't about to get his hands dirty, but yet he don't want to be with the Negro. It can't be assimilated. He needs the Negro. Remember, Jefferson is with Sally. <laughs> so he's getting some serious pleasure from the Negro, but the Negro is also inassimilable. That is precisely the melancholic anxiety and incoherence of the project. It is in the letter to Lafayette that the, that the conjoined problems of nation, which is the problem of population management, um, come together. Worry over whether, whether he, um, I skipped the line, sorry. It is that the conjoined projects, problems of nation, which is the problem of population management, how to render the interior government of the U.S. in terms of popular sovereignty, how they all converge and possibly become stillborn, whether the American project will succeed. And the question of success turns on the inassimilability of the Negro. With this convergence, in and on um, with, um, with this converges, and in one stroke, the Jeffersonian colonization project as a project of political theology as the policing of flesh 
was imagined as an answer to the crisis of homogenous democracy. What I've started to describe here is how a vision of American subjectivity follows a theologic in its very installation, a vision of the normative redemptive figure of the human, a kind of false God-man over against the one who is always already abject and damned, destined for a kind of social hell, a social death. The 19th century must be looked at not only in the late 18th century, the founding of the republic must be looked at not only at the level of its political um, conscience, but it also must be looked at at the level of its post-racial unconscious. What I've tried to describe in other words is the sheer vulgarity of the political as we know it and into which we all function. This all raises the question, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? One way of reading this is this is a sheerly pessimistic you know, lecture because I basically argue that the political as we know it is already bankrupt. So what do you do then? This is where I want to turn to the black radical because I want to argue and contend that it gives you another vision of sociality, of what it means to be together, to be with others, that is not predicated on the regulation of who constitutes a proper human and therefore able to be a citizen and who does not. And in fact, that vision of who does and who doesn't, it comes online in reaction to this. It don't come first. The anti-political is what I call it, A-N-T-E, that which is interior, anterior to the political as we know it. How do we make sense of this? I don't want to fully or I can't fully answer that question now because it's a lecture in its own right. But allow me to begin to approach it by way of the work of poet Fred Moten. After this Moten-inspired reflection, one one can then begin to see possibilities of existence otherwise. In his poetic ode to Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who represents California's 13th Congressional District, and whom he calls following Percy Shelley, an unacknowledged legislator in the key of blackness, Fred Moten, who has emerged as one of the most important interlocutors in the work that I do at the intersection of theology and black studies, suggests an answer to the question of an alternative imaginary of the political, an answer to the question, what is the anti-A-N-T-E political? Let me begin by reading from his poem. What we have here, and you can't see this, and I I regret that. I wish I had actually printed out um, documents so that you can sort of see it. Um, Let me try and read right from it, in fact unacknowledged legislator. Um, The part that I'm going to read is from the third movement in the poem. There are three sequences to the poem. Um, This is from the third movement in the poem (coughs) um, called Barbara Lee in the collection called B. Jenkins. The first movement is titled The Poetics of Political Form. The second movement is called Statement in Opposition. And what I'm reading here, the unacknowledged legislator, is the culminating third movement. The poem, a prose poem, it goes like this. Um, Fred is amazing. You're going to love this. So just sit back and cross your legs. You're going to love this. Um, According to Shelley, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. 
Let's say the world is a zone from and within which life is constantly escaping. Poets sing the form of that endless running, that ongoing running on, always busting out of the sentence or cutting being sentenced. But those, um, those broken songs, even in their incessant breaking away, cannot but bear the heavy burden of being held. At stake here is a complex of weighted departure, of flight, <laughs> flight <coughs> in seizure, of an emergent statelessness submerged beneath the state of emergency, of emergent statelessness submerged beneath the state of emergency. There's always a trace on the there's always a trace on the ones who want to go. Nevertheless, unacknowledged legislators sing diversion out of turn. They instigate small passages. Their envoys strive to move. Their envoys strive to more um, more than correspond. Somewhere between being one of the elect and having been elected. The unacknowledged legislator operates on the edge of things, resisting that desire for inclusion, resisting that a desire for inclusion that eviscerates politics as the politics of escape. When brutal attacks on the um, on, when brutal attacks on the simultaneously real and symbolic centers of brutal power constitute a reactive reactionary chance to open the books of legitimate anti-politics so that associates can become made men, the unacknowledged legislator chooses to remain an unmade and unacknowledged one. The maker remains unmade even when she is subjected momentarily to the glaring hypervisibility intermittently, intermittently trained on the ones whose differences periodically reinitialize anti-A-N-T-E politics. Veering off from state-sanctioned rhetorical reserves and out-of-national pseudo-humanist discursive frames, her sound reveals that she is thinking <clears throat> and therefore is marginal, and that she keeps thinking about what it means to be on the outskirts or part of the outwork of the republic. That phrase right there is what I'm trying to get after. But she is at the same time constrained to offer her music speech in the already given idiom of anti-politics, the anti-politics of the left and the right. Her veering off from and out of occurs on the inside in the name of that other outer interiority. So she turns what is turned against into a vestibule of possibilities, an anti-ante room. She takes this turn in a cramped, cracked stanza, homelessly acting like she at home when she takes flight, held still in forced movement. Think about Rosa Parks on the bus, held still in forced movement. That weight compels the unacknowledged legislator to love, the way to go, um, the, the way to get to what hasn't happened yet, to care for the way excuse me, to care for the way what hasn't happened yet is in the midst and on the edge of its negation, to turn in and on negation's language until it comes out, if not comes out right, 
as ANTE, A-N-T-E, national language. International language. What's the language on the other side of nation language, which is the other side of race language? That's what we're trying to get after. This language, Fred continues, that is before the nation is finally more than international. In this sense, unacknowledged legislators aspire to be real ambassadors. The anti-national language of diplomacy is a bent poetics in which the one who inhabits a history of displacement speaks the ethics that attend that history <coughs> by way of interstitial jargon, tones, and fragments that get under the skin of the standard words and phrases that slip and seep into the underground of the patria, the fatherland, that reemerge as a set of broken claims to patriotism or a set of claims breaking patriotism, depending on how you hear it. This off or sub or super standard poetics links political speech to songs for um, to songs um, to, um, to links political speech to songs for lovers or others such distressed seemingly simple gifts. What is left to the listeners, the strangers, the ones who will have gone on to practice or to rehearse this music, this poetry, this poetics, is a general responsibility of advance. <clears throat> where what it is to move on is all about having gone back into and under the arc of displaced social life, that outer space structured by inner sound, which is where the poetics of political form lives, where the poetics takes up and is taken up by its life, which is a form of life cloaked and clothed, veiled, given in a sumptuary law of motion. The unacknowledged legislator is anti, A-N-T-E, not anti, anti-American, secreted in the raiment that love, loved flesh secretes. This aura of the dispossessed is owned shade, claimed shadow, the wrapped shawl of the poor. The unacknowledged legislator is Barbara Lee. Love that. Let me conclude with a couple remarks about that poem because it's the antipolitical that I'm very interested in. And I'm positing the antipolitical as an, as an alternative to what I think at our best we might be trying to get after in our desire to be past race. Responding, and I have to say in a hilarious but no less serious way, to Plato's, to, to, um, Plato's complaint that poets can't get no love. Responding, <laughs> responding, that is, to that mourning, and here we go with the blues again, on the part of some poets who remain surprised, this is a quote from the earlier stanza in the poem from Fred, on the part of some poets who, who remain surprised that they don't run. Sorry about that, that's Fred. Though I like the phrase. Um, I'm surprised that they don't run, that, that, ain't, that they ain't even citizens, Fred Moten tells us that the unacknowledged legislator operates on the edge of things, resisting the desire for inclusion that eviscerates politics as the antipolitics of escape. When all others aspire to freedom in order to become made, so to, in order to become made, that is to make it in society, that is to become self-made men, the unacknowledged legislator aspires to something else. 
she aspires to liberty, quote unquote, which is to say she chooses to remain unmade. She chooses, Fred Moten tells us in his poetry collection, B. Jenkins, to engage in thinking and therefore to be marginal. And what is it that the unacknowledged legislator thinks through? What is it that she thinks about in her marginal condition? He tells us she keeps thinking about what it means to be on the outskirts or part of the outwork of the republic, even as she's constrained to offer her music speech. Perhaps, perhaps it's the speech of Aunt Hester's scream in Frederick Douglass's 1845 narrative in the given idiom of left and right politics and anti-politics, always subject to being confused with and reduced to the speech of politics and anti-politics as we know it. Anti-A-N-T-E political speech of the unacknowledged legislator is a speech that constantly is veering off. Her veering off from and out of, Moton tells us, occurs on the inside in the name of that other outer interiority. Pause for a moment. You can almost begin to think of um, the um, Hush Arbor churches that were in the, in the midst of the plantation scene that Fred might be trying to think through. Making the, um, uh, yeah, making the Fanonian descent into hell, we might say she turns what is turned against into a vestibule, into an anteroom of new possibilities. She makes it a launching pad, a runway, a way that is constantly running, way, running away, an approach to the future, a futurity of social life irreducible to the political and to the politics of freedom as it's been given to us. Is there another way to think freedom? This is the question of anti-politics, the anti-politics of fugitive escape, the anti-politics of fugitivity, of homelessness, of homelessly acting like you at home precisely in taking flight, held still in forced movement on the Underground Railroad, in Harriet Jacobs' loophole of retreat, bearing the stigmata of movement in Harry Box, Henry Box Brown's having been boxed up as he was shipped to freedom in a mailing crate to Philadelphia. Not unlike Abram in the scriptures called to become Abraham, the boxing up of his identity in mobility into the promised land. Thus the unacknowledged legislator, as Fred Moten would have it, in being anti-political is consequently anti-American. This is the thing I'm trying to press on us. We're, we're, we're sutured to the project of America to the point we don't know how to think about being anti is there an interiority to trying to imagine what it means to be with each other apart from the mediation of America as the project that's given to us? Why does that have to be the mediator for us? Particularly given that that mediator requires the life of some through the killing of others. And in being anti-American is anti-Christian, anti-Christian secreted in the raiment, not that the body politic secretes, but that loved flesh secretes. Whereas Toni Morrison has baby Suggs, the reverend who refused to be a reverend because she understood how reverends often were caught up in the political project, says in her sermon, in that unlocatable place of placelessness out in the field in the clearing of the book Beloved, the place where the runaways met. Here in this place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, flesh that laughs, 
flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. Love the flesh. Love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more, no more do they love the skin of your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use to tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together. Stroke them on your face. Call, um, they don't, um, because they don't love that either. You got to love it. You and no, they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder, out there, they will see it um, broken and break it again. What you say out of it will not be heard, will not be heeded. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you put into it to nourish your body, they will snatch away from you and give you um, leavens instead. No, they don't love your mouth. You got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved. Feet that need to rest and to dance. Backs that need support. Shoulders that need arms. Strong arms, I'm telling you. And all my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Put a hand on it. Grace it. Stroke it and hold it up. And all your inside parts that they just as soon slop for hogs, you got to love them too. The dark, dark liver, love it, love it. And the beat and beating heart, love that too. More than eyes or feet, more than lungs that, ha- um, more than lungs that have yet to draw free air, more than your life-holding womb and your life-giving private parts. Hear me now, love your heart, for this is the prize. Saying no more, she stood up then, baby Suggs, and danced with her twisted hip the rest of what her heart had to say while the others opened their mouths and gave her the music. Long notes held until the four-part harmony was perfect enough for their deeply loved flesh. In quote. In conclusion, this is anti-politics and stands over against the politics of the post-racial, which is the politics of the racial. It is the politics of feel, of touch, of being with, of deregulated hugging and holding. It is the politics of love dispossessed, love in that exe- love that exceeds regulation. It is it is the aura of the dispossessed, the politics of touch, of contact, of joining, of being with, of communion. Otherwise, a haptic politics of the touch, of contact in the shade, which is in fact a halo, an aura. A claimed shadow, the shadow of the wrapped shawl of the poor. Such a politics requires a rerouting and a rewriting of the very meaning of religion, which means binding. Religion must be uncoupled from the project of the racial, the project of sovereignty, the project of the republic, and thus uncoupled from political theology itself. I am against political theology, and you should be too. Anti-politics, A-N-T-E, is shadowed performativity, being together, hugging and communion in deregulated ways, ways that the state will never understand. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.